I think I learned somewhere it's not good to start an article or a sermon with a question, but I'm, I'm about to break that rule this morning. I just realized. And it's this. Have you ever wondered what were the self-conscious aims of Jesus? Like, have you ever wondered what, what did he think he was up to? Or what do you suppose he thought God was up to in and through him? You know, like just when he got up every morning and did his thing, to what do we suppose he was self-conscious? Or we could put it a little differently. What do we think his aims were? His, you know, just his sense of purpose. And if we could arrive at some of what that is, how might that guide our thinking about both our own personal discipleship and the role of the church in the world? So in our gospel reading this morning, if you want to look there, we have one such example where Jesus says something to which he was conscious. When he says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. So see, I have not come to abolish all this, but my sense of myself is I am fulfilling them. And many commentators on Matthew have noted that uh, the English word there, fulfill, is a rather technical term for Matthew, that it's loaded with all these eschatological connections between this story that had begun in the Law and the Prophets and that was going to find its completion in Jesus, so that over and over again in Matthew, and this is one way to outline Matthew, is Matthew says, so-and-so happened that it might be fulfilled. And this is one of these instances where Matthew's seeing in Jesus' words something very important. And I think this is where we get to Jesus' deep self-consciousness and what I would like to suggest to you as a self-consciousness for your life. No matter what you might get a paycheck for, married or unmarried, young kids, kids grown, whatever, you know, that's just sort of life circumstances and they're very important. But what is the self-consciousness that we bring to our life stage or our life situation? And for Jesus, it was, I am in the middle of an unfolding story. Or better put, I am bringing an end. I am the beginning of the end of this long unfolding story. And that in my fulfillment of the law, and in not setting it aside, I am showing you that Torah, the way that God mentored and guided and led his people all this time, cannot be reduced to just definitions of sin. It can't be reduced to Deuteronomy, for instance. It can't be reduced to Leviticus. It includes those things, but it can't be reduced to that. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm here to show you what all that was supposed to add up to. I'm trying to show you what was the heart and the intention under what God was doing with law and prophets. So I love the way the message gets this. I'm not here to set these apart. I'm going to pull it all together. I'm going to pull it all together in a vast panorama and show you how God's law is more real and lasting than the stars of the sky and the ground at your feet. Just think about that for a moment. If you think of law properly, if you think of Torah properly, the sort of guiding, teaching, mentoring, instructing interaction of God with his people, Jesus is saying that is more lasting, more permanent, more grounding than anything. That long after the stars burn out and the earth wears out, 
God's law will be alive and working. So now when we come to the sermon itself that we're reading this year in Epiphany, the Sermon on the Mount, there's so many angles one could take on the sermon, but given just this little passage we've been given to read, one way to think about it is that Jesus is here acting something like a prophet and that the Sermon on the Mount is something like an intervention for Israel. I mean, this is Jesus's first audience. Jesus's first audience isn't, you know, middle-class Orange County people. His first audience is a Israel that is significantly misunderstanding itself. And Jesus is here acting something like a prophet or a rabbi. And he's teaching or pulling or steering Israel back to what it means to be God's people. And in that sense, he's acting in a prophetic tradition. And the one thing about prophetic utterances is that they are astoundingly clear and in modern ears can sound actually really harsh. So look at your Isaiah 58 reading. Declare to my people their rebellion. I mean, can you imagine saying to somebody today, you're in rebellion? It would be like, who the H-E double toothpicks do you think you are to tell me I'm in rebellion? Right? Who are you to tell me that? Not only because you can't know that, but aren't you yourself, right? I mean, this just sounds so harsh to modern ears that there even could be such a thing as rebellion. Because what does rebellion imply? Rebellion requires a billion. You know, there's a bell ringing somewhere. Sometimes when I'm listening to um, Pray As You Go, if you ever listen to Pray As You Go, you know that it often starts with bells. And I find myself saying, God, bring me into rhythm and harmony with those bells, both the rhythm and the harmony. See, one of the reasons we don't know what rebellion is today is we've lost the bell. We've lost any, any sense that there is a way that things are or that God has actually up to something and that there is a purpose on earth that we actually can rebel against. So Isaiah says very pointedly, you can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Do you know what Isaiah would be called today? Judgmental, unkind, unfair. You only have your perspective, right? But why? Because he says your, your sort of religiosity, that's what fasting is meant to convey here, it only leads to exploitation of workers and exploiting each other. And what Isaiah wants to say is the correct worship works something more like the breath prayer that, you know, that uh, Beth introduced us to this morning. That as we come to worship, we inhale the love and grace of God to exhale love and power to others. That's the great command. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what Isaiah is just calling out to the people of Israel is that they've somehow maintained a form of religion, but they've lost their sense that they were to be God's people on earth. It had somehow become all about them and right ritual and right worship, and they forgot that, and I think I first got this from Tom Wright, that they were meant to be God's cosmic first responders on the earth bringing God's healing, or as the prophets like to say, justice 
on the earth. And this is why Isaiah says, look at your passage, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to share your food with the hungry, to provide for the poor wanderer, etc., etc. Well, again, this is a long, deep, profound prophetic tradition. Do you remember, can you try to remember the first time you read these words from Amos 5? I despise your religious festivals. Do you remember the first time you read that? How shocking that was? Like, what the heck? God sometimes despises religion? I mean, that is a stunning, shocking thought. Your assemblies, Amos said to Israel, are a stench to me. (laughs) Can you imagine? Away with the noise of your songs. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Or you think of the end of Matthew. You know, Matthew 25, where you've got this scene of final judgment, and you've got sheep and goats. And what makes one a sheep and the other a goat is precisely whatever you did or did not do to the least of these. So this is the long prophetic uh, tradition that Jesus is speaking in. And what this kind of all adds up to is a prophetic indictment of religious ritual that's unaccompanied by caring for the least of these because it becomes basically self-serving. I mean, to put it in kind of modern, almost therapeutic words, that this is a failure of integration. They're somehow not integrating religion with primary calling to be the people of God. And I just want to say, based on my 40 years of experience personally and in leading the church, can we just say this is not easy. The integration called for here, if it were easy, we'd all be doing it easily. And for 2,000 years, the church would have been doing it easily. And Jesus' first friends would have been doing it easily. This kind of integration is really difficult because of all the manifest brokenness that we all bring to it. And so that always leaves me thinking, okay, Todd, that's true. But, you know, does that like somehow let me off the hook then? You know, with phrases like, well, I'm only human or well, not until I get to heaven. But what about this? I can ask myself, do I want it? Do I want that integration? And then I can just start there and just keeping it real. So if you realize as you ask yourself that question, no, I'm, I'm actually not sure I want it. That's okay. You're just starting where you are. Jesus always starts where people are, not where he wishes they were. And so then you can just wonder again. In the presence of the God who loves you, his unending grace for you, you can just wonder, Lord, why don't I want this? And maybe you discover something like fear. And you just begin to wonder a little deeper, Lord, why am I afraid? And then maybe you begin to get some inklings of why you're afraid, and then you might just wonder, Lord, how can we heal this? So that I can at least get to the place where I want what you want. 
So then it's within this tradition that we hear this one angle, at least, on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is once again calling Israel to its purpose. That's the meaning of these famous words of your salt and light. These are statements of identity. This is what you were meant to be, and you've drifted from this. And that this knowledge then was meant to give meaning and purpose to their life and aim. And Jesus was essentially saying, you've been raised up by God with this distinctive capacity to bring goodness to the earth. I'm just sort of summarizing what Jesus is saying there. In a sense, to rehumanize life. This, this is what you're meant to be, this sort of salt and light. And then, after he gives that vision, he does what every prophet does. Now, I'm not saying Jesus isn't divine or anything like that. I'm saying here you're seeing something like the activity of a prophet. And so prophets then always, they kind of paint a picture of what was meant to be a vision, and then they show what's real, and then they just note the gap, and then they call the people into alignment with what God had intended in the first place. And so this is why Jesus says, looking at your passage, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, some people would have heard that and thought, well, no way, how can anybody, the Pharisees and Sadducees are the most at least self-righteous people we've ever known. That's their whole deal. They're the righteous ones and they try to put their righteousness on us. How could anybody ever surpass that? And what Jesus knows when he looks at that crowd on the hill that day that there were a lot of options available to being Israel in the first century. Like Jesus knew he was looking at people who thought the best way to do this is to sort of ghettoize ourselves. And so something like this, the world's getting out of control. You know, for them, it would have been Rome and Caesar and Herod and Pilate and all that. The world's getting out of control. Let's just go exist in a little ghetto somewhere. Others thought, no way, let's kill those suckers. They were known as the zealots. But Jesus is looking at him and saying, if you ghettoize yourself, how could you be salt and light? You don't hide a light, you know, under a bushel basket. No, you stay proximate to public. You don't disappear in a little ghetto. And how can you be a zealot and trying to kill people and then live with love and generosity to your enemies? Or to the Herodians out there in the crowd, the ones who thought, well, the best way to be faithfully Jewish was to sort of live in a political compromise, you know, through Herod in the temple and, you know, just sort of cutting deals with Rome. Jesus might have been thinking of them, well, okay, I get that worldview, but then how could you live before an audience of one if you're always cutting deals with all these other audiences? And this is what Jesus means, at least in part, that your righteousness, that is to say, your alignment with God's purposes has to exceed that, than what you know right now as the options on offer of how to be religious. And then he explains why. He says the righteousness of the religious leaders is focused on keeping tradition and public displays of piety. As he goes on in the sermon, he explains this, and things like adherence to the letter of the law, while missing the whole point. And what people are meant to see in this person they're now just thinking of as a rabbi or a prophet is that the righteousness of Jesus flows from love of his father and love of what his father's doing. It flows from relationship. 
And I just want to say that I think we have a similar thing going on today. We don't have zealots in the Qumran sect and Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and scribes. We don't got that stuff going on. But we do have this going on, the left and the right. All who now, out of a generation or two of positioning themselves with the kind of purity of worldview that those other religious groups would have had, both yelling at each other and finding a way to purify those positions. We got the same thing going on today. We have it going on politically notably, and we have it going on notably in religion. And I just wanna say, I think for me, I mean, any of you who know me knows that Dallas Willard was a good friend, uh, important mentor to me. But you don't have to love Willard and Dallas would have been the first to say he wasn't right about everything. He would have been the very first to say that. But I think, just for me, maybe his most important contribution of all the contributions he's made were in the second and the third chapter of The Divine Conspiracy, where he carefully laid out the mistaken notions of the gospel on the left and the gospel on the right. It was just kind of his critique of 20th century Christianity. And if you had asked him, Dallas, why are you doing this? Dallas would have said, well, my sense of myself is that I'm supposed to represent Jesus to the needs of the people who are proximate to me. Like my parents and grandparents did it for their generation and like young people will do it for their generation. But I think I'm supposed to help people think about what it means to be true to God today. And what Dallas saw was sort of equal and opposite errors on the right and the left. And that he called this the gospels of sin management. So that the gospel then gets reduced to simply managing sin. And I've already said part of what Jesus was blowing up was that you cannot reduce Torah to sin. The things laid out in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and stuff were never the point. They were to enable a point. They were to create a kind of people who could do the point, who could be the point, who could have reference to the point. They were never meant to be the point. But when Dallas just looked around from all his years as a minister and as a philosophy professor at USC, seeing the kinds of things that kids brought into the classroom and that he saw when he spoke in churches and conferences, he just saw that on the left, trying to manage sin, both personal and social, by doing good deeds. And just thinking that if we could do enough good deeds, and remove the social and structural evil that we see out there, that that would be kind of the thing. Well, the problem is that's almost always self or culturally determined. It doesn't have any real reference to God in his kingdom. Not most of the time. It's whatever's hip or cool or somebody important is saying. And so it loses this overall reference as does the gospel on the right which just simply says that what God's up to is the forgiveness of our sins so that we can go to heaven when, our, when we die by professing faith or decisions. And what I wanna say is that neither of those get anywhere close to what Matthew has in mind and on the lips of Jesus of fulfillment of the aims of Jesus. That if you think of this huge story from Adam and what God intended with humanity, and the calling of Abraham and the creation of Israel, 
all the way to John the Baptist beginning to pull all this together. And then Jesus coming and saying, I am fulfilling this. This is the great vision that John sees on Patmos, for instance, Revelation 5, when, when he sees this lamb and he says, worthy are you to take the scroll, the scroll being the bell that we've rebelled from, the scroll meaning here the purposes and plans of God, and it's sealed up, and it doesn't look like it's gonna come to pass. But then John sees Jesus and sees that you're worthy because you are slain, and with your blood you purchase for God persons of every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And without that orienting bell ringing in our head, we miss it on the left and we miss it on the right. And we miss it both politically and religiously on the left and the right. And the reason you never hear me making partisan political statements is because I want to talk about that which transcends politics. It includes it, but can never be reduced to it. I will not for myself and in my teaching, let the left or the right frame these issues. What frames these issues are God and his kingdom, his eternal purposes. And sometimes the left in the church and politics is right, and sometimes in church and politics the right is right. But they're never right all the time. Neither of them have an adequate worldview. The only adequate worldview for being human is God and his kingdom. It's only Christ who has what it takes to unroll the scroll and let the purposes of God come to pass. What we're called to do is give ourselves to him and that Jesus movement. The Jesus movement, as much as I love it, didn't begin with Calvary Chapel, <laughs> didn't begin in Haight-Asbury in San Francisco in the 60s. The Jesus movement began 2,000 years ago, and we're called into that. So that what would it be like for someday for you to die and there to be on your tombstone here was somebody who helped break the cords. And here was somebody who was in the Jesus movement, who through their life, in their words and deeds, facilitated the unfolding of God's purposes on earth, that you had become a kingdom and a priest to serve our God, ruling with him on the earth. And then, you know, I've told you before, John gets to the end of this vision on Patmos, and one of his very last words, Romans, or sorry, Revelation 22.5, he sees us, he sees the people of God. And he says, and they will rule and reign with him forever and ever. So this great prophetic tradition is just meant to call us to proper allegiance, to be the people of God, seeking the transformation of our own lives and our own characters, and then bringing that to bear on the earth for God's good purposes for humanity. Now, just one quick last thing. In closing, look at your psalm. I love this psalm. It's just got like a charm to it. Because it's, it's got almost a little, it's kind of got a little cheeky thing to it that says that uh, following the way of Jesus, as he brings his, Israel's long history to the beginning of its completion, it kind of asks and wonders in an ancient way, is this a good and desirable thing? And the psalmist says, yeah, Surprisingly, as it turns out, obedience is life-giving, right? I mean, you could go out on this. We could go over to South Coast Plaza and ask a thousand people, do you think obedience to God is fun? Do you think obedience to God you would experience is joyful? And you'd get the craziest looks ever, right? And what the psalmist says is, you know, surprisingly, 
Getting yourself in the Jesus movement is actually a good and joyous and loving thing. It's actually life-giving. It says, I'm paraphrasing here. Well, I'm not paraphrasing here. Blessed are those, it says, who fear the Lord, who find great delight. That is to say, they cherish and relish God's commands. They are, as Peterson puts it, unfazed by rumor and gossip, heart-ready, trusting in God, spirit-firm, unperturbed, ever-blessed, relaxing among enemies. That's the life that God intended for his people, that out of that deep inner security, they could know that I exist with God for the sake of others. I love God with my whole heart, my whole soul, my whole mind, my whole social self, and my neighbor as myself. Now, all this epiphany, we've given you this little breath prayer from the Psalms. Turn my heart to your word. Turn my heart to you. And this is why. This is why we've given it to you. Because in all of our hearts are rebellion. They may be big. They might be small. But our breath prayer for epiphany, and I want to invite you now to put your stuff down. You might want to close your eyes, make yourself physically still. And I want to invite you in our quiet moment this morning to just give yourself once again to that little breath prayer. Breathing in, turn our hearts to your word. Breathing out, turn our hearts to you.